Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you today. Um, It's a real pleasure to be up here and be able to share a word. Um, And uh, this morning we're going to talk about Psalm 31. So I was given a couple. I was given some options amongst the ten psalms uh, to choose, and I was considering a, a couple. There was two others that I thought, "Oh, they're nice." Um, I felt familiar, and I thought, "I like these. They, they uh, felt positive and encouraging." And I thought the message in them was clear. I thought I knew what I wanted to say. Uh, but as I sat on it and I prayed about it, I felt led to Psalm 31, and um, I remember saying, "God, like, why am I? Why this one?" It's. Um, it felt. I remember having no idea what to do with it. It felt messy, repetitive, depressing, and intense. So I was like, yeah, so welcome. Um, (laughs) But I felt, um, as I sat with it, I felt like God wanted to talk about mindsets. So, um, over here is my wife, Stephanie. She's the second row in. Um, Stephanie's a physiotherapist and um, practiced as a physiotherapist for seven years, I think. Maybe? Anyway, uh, a time. And um, I remember a while ago we talked about people's recovery and that it was hugely affected by people's negative or positive mindset towards healing and pain. Whether they thought they were going to heal quickly and whether pain was, oh no, I'm in so much pain, this is so bad, or pain's okay, I I can get through this. Um, Yeah. So Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, says, the way you see yourself influences every area of your life. Your identity determines whether or not you will be happy, successful, full of hope, and able for God to use you for great things. Satan is hard at work, using things such as opinions of others, painful experiences, and even the media to conceal your your true identity in Christ. Do you see yourself through the eyes of God and what he says about you? It will change how you approach everything. Some other random guy on the internet, I think it came up in my first Google search, was uh, the story you tell yourself is the story you become. So the, um, the beliefs that are in us and the things we say to ourselves affect our very approach to life, to the world and how we process the things we go through. The question for all of us this morning is, what story are you telling yourself? Does it align with what God has said? So um, I've been a Christian for about 15 years. I, I got baptized in a, in a trough on a trailer outside Horsham Downs 15 years ago. And uh, I, uh, as, as I journeyed through faith, for about the first 10 years, I felt I was okay with Jesus. I thought Jesus was nice. Um, and I thought Holy Spirit was, was nice. I liked when he turned up. But when people talked about God the Father, I really struggled. I thought God the Father was, uh, all he wanted from me was severe obedience. Do what I say or I'll hit you with a stick. Um, so I would, he would lead me to like minister to someone and then I would be left wrecked by some other experience and, and I'd be like, God, you're so mean. Why, why do you put me through these things? Um, so about uh, three and a half years ago, I went to a, a ministry and because um, I was having some struggles with this and uh, what we found out was that I believed God used me like a chess piece, that he was no respecter of man, that he did as he pleased, and he didn't, 
he said he was nice, but I, he wasn't. That was what I thought. And so what they helped me to do was write what they call godly beliefs. So it's like, what does the Bible really say, and what does the Holy Spirit say about this? So we wrote this. Thank you, Father God, for taking me through the right experiences to equip me with the strength and training for the coming season. I trust you. So part of this was that you had to say this every day for 60 days, hopefully morning and night. So as I drove to work, I'd be declaring this in the car, along with a few others. And um, over time, it began to be what came out of me when trials hit me. So I'd go through something that previously had knocked me over, and I'd say, God's so mean. And I'd say, thank you, God, for this experience. Thank you for training me through it. Thank you for building my resilience. Thank you, Lord, that you're like a good father that wants to mature your son, and I'm your son. So this, um, this, along with the journey of getting to know the Father's heart, has led to me no longer thinking like I used to. I know him as, a, as kind and caring. I know him like a good father who actually wants us to grow us through the, through the things we go through. I'm not perfect in it yet. I'm getting there. There's times where it still hits us and... I think like is exemplified in the psalm. There's times where the trial does hit us so deep that we, we get a bit lost, but God is big enough to hear it, but it's about what we do with that. So um, a couple of fun facts about today's psalm. Uh, there's a total of 150 psalms. Uh, 75 psalms are known to have been written by David, which is exactly half. There's a bunch of different genres. Some of them are like Thanksgiving, praise, lament, others. Uh, 65 psalms are classed as laments. Um, laments are ex- uh, express human struggles like sorrow, grief, regret, fear, suffering, etc. Um, there's 30 that fall into a genre called refugee psalms. So it's where the psalmist is running from someone and seeking refuge in the Lord. This psalm today is considered a both a lament and a refugee psalm. To get you excited about it, um, one commentator called Psalm 31 one of the longest and most impressive laments. Another commentator said, Psalm 31 was such a good lament that it had double intensity. Uh, he, he titled his discussion, um, When a Prayer Needed to be Prayed Twice. So get excited. Um, 13 of David's psalms have a clear setting, like a dedication at the temple, or when he fled from Absalom, his son, or when he was in a cave. Scholars aren't in agreement with when this lamenting refugee psalm was written, uh, in which situation David finds himself. Um, Some say it's running from Saul, some fleeing from Absalom, or running from an enemy, or when he was taken hostage. As I sat with this psalm, I felt drawn to the story when David is fleeing from Absalom. Uh, So let's begin with a brief picture of that story. The the history of uh, David and Absalom takes place in six chapters in 2 Samuel, and it's full of intrigue and moral failings by both David and his son. There's not a lot to say uh, in the histories of David doing a lot of fathering. It doesn't actually say much about what he was like as a dad, and I kind of almost felt like the picture was like of an absent father king. In some ways, the story begins when David refused to discipline and execute judgment against his first son, Amnon. Amnon violated his sister. This leads to Absalom taking justice into his own hands and murdering Amnon. Absalom then flees and is exiled. 
Sometime later, David is convinced to bring Absalom back. Uh, Absalom submits himself before the king. He bows and says, do with me as you please. What sounds like uh, reconciliation actually begins a, a conspiracy. In 2 Samuel 15, it says that when Absalom returns to the city, he got himself a chariot and 50 men to run before him. He'd rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. He positioned himself so that whenever someone came uh, to bring a dispute before the king for him to pass judgment on, he'd intercept them and he'd hear them out. And he'd say, your claims are good, but the king doesn't have anyone to hear your dispute. If only I was judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came to pay him homage, he'd put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The story goes on to say that Absalom went about doing this for four years. This was no short-term thing. David would have known about it happening. Uh, I think it's in verse 17, David, a messenger comes to David and he learns that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. So he calls together his servants who were with him, so those who still followed him, um, and fled the city saying, so that the city will not go to the sword. The, as, as he's exiting the city, the priests meet David with the Ark of the Covenant of God on their shoulders. And they're like, they were ready to flee with him with the Ark. And David turns to them and says, in verse 25, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. It it still gets worse. Um, So as David and his men flee east into the Jordan, there's a guy named Shimei, a descendant of King Saul, cursing and throwing rocks at him as they walk. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of King Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. One of David's men tries to convince David to kill him, but David refuses. And basically saying in verse 11, let him curse. It may be that the Lord has told him to. But if he's wrong, then maybe the Lord will repay me good for his cursing today. Absalom enters the city, gathers in his army, and sends it against David. Kyosh, mate. And so, Absalom, David's own son, takes Jerusalem from him without a fight, is anointed king by the people of Israel, and sends an army against his own father to kill him and his followers. David, the king, is made a refugee by his own son in the wilderness. The hearts of Israel have turned against him. David's own counselor has turned against him. He doesn't even know if the guy doing cursing him is being told to do so by the Lord. Could you set up a worse position to, to be in? Like, it's terrible. As we read the psalm, I want to look through the lens of this moment. Very real enemies, abandonments, betrayals, failure, shame, guilt, terror on every side. What we want to focus on, though is not the situation and how uncomfortable it is, but to see David's battlefield of the mind, to see what came out of him when he was squeezed by struggle. So we're going to approach this in four pieces. Um, And part one is verses one to five. And in these verses, he positions himself before God. 
before David even talks about what's going on, before he makes his complaint known, before the lament really begins, he positions himself as one reliant on God. That's what comes out of his mouth. What we read here doesn't tell us a lot about the situation, but it tells us a lot about his heart posture. So, Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me and rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead and you guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So as David writes this, he begins focused upward to the one in whom his trust is held. Psalms aren't often written from always a place of comfort. So many of these are written in trial. And now in this next section, verses 6 to 13, we get to hear about that trial um, and the double intensity. So we hear the grim reality of his lament and the reality of his situation. And I actually, as I read this, I, I kind of feel like David gets lost in his pain and his suffering here, as we sometimes do with ours. So, verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction, you've known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy, and you have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbours, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. David had been watching this happen over four years. People who used to stand with him would avoid him. People who used to be his counsellors, he could see that they looked at him differently. They responded to him differently. They, he would hear things of, of them meeting with Absalom and, and conversations going on and terror on every side. There's, um, in this section, there's two things I want to hi- highlight. One is uh, something that I, I kind of went, what's that about? Um, and that's where the Bible or the Psalms say, I hate those, dot, dot, dot. Um, and in, in this one it says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. What I believe David is saying is I hate this mindset. All these things that the world trusts in, I hate those opinions. They all suck. God, these people are blind. You are the one I trust in, and I pay no regard to worthless idols or the hopes of the nations around me. Their regard for idols and their trust in natural things to save them is repulsive to me. Um, the other thing I want to pull out is something beautiful in the midst of this. He has this amazing statement in the middle of the complaint. You have set my feet in a broad place. And this follows um, that there is enemies all around me. You have set my feet in a broad place. In the natural, it looked like things were closing in around him. But 
his trust focused on God. He knew he was faithful and he rested in that trust. Yeah, these circumstances suck, but you own it all, Lord. You raise up and tear down and I don't need to be concerned. You hold my lot secure. Do as pleases you with me. If only we could think that way in the midst of our trials. Now we get to part three and there's a bit of a shift here. Um, It opens, uh, he begins to operate from a place of making his requests known to God. Um, and, and we see trial overcome by trust. I, I love the first verse, verse 14. Um, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. As I read this, I, I see him saying, no, he's just complained all the stuff. He's like, no, no, I say, you are my God. Like he's taking his position. He's like, no, I'm, I've just been overwhelmed, but I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand. So let's read this. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you're my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hands of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. So the key here is that self-talk. The moment that he turns himself from pain, just and he makes an expressed choice to say, "You are my God," and fix his eyes on the Lord in the midst of the trials. And that brings us to part four, which I've titled "Triumphant Trust." He now revels in God and the trust he has in Him. So, verse nineteen. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Then he turns to his followers, all those around him, and he then encourages them. Him, them. He's taken his eyes off his situation, he's fixed his eyes on the Lord, and now he implores all of his followers and all of us to do likewise. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. David had so much reason to feel sorry for himself, uh, to be down and crushed in the dirt. But even in moments like this, what came out of him was faith in God. What he filled his life with came out in these moments of crushing pressure. We know that David's life was full of worship and praise and time with the Lord. With the, God, the, the larger number of psalms he wrote in so many different situations. Also by the lifestyle of faith that he lived. The great feats he did with the Lord. And that the Lord also called him to be king because he sought a man after his own heart. What David was full of came out of him in the good times and the bad. When it was good, we can see that he wrote psalms of worship and praise and was known to dance before the Lord. When it was bad, he called upon the Lord and declared his trust in him. Oh, that we could live this way.
David trusted God above his circumstances. He was flooded by fears, but then he'd released the flood to God. It wasn't that he never felt the strain of the physical reality of his situation. It was that he brought it back to God. And God would take it from him. David's eyes were fixed upon the Lord. As he put his trust in God, God would take the yoke of fear and shame of the terrors from him. He came into agreement with what 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says, and he destroyed sophisticated arguments and every exalted and proud thing that set it up itself up against the true knowledge of God. And he took every thought and purpose captive to the obedience of Christ. In the spirit, he invited God to have it all, to take, take it all if he wanted and to give it to whom he pleased. This was David's battlefield of the mind. So David modelled what it is to live out these verses. It's to take the arguments, the exalted lies, the pain and the suffering, the exalted realities and the pains, the proud things that were counter to trusting in God and bringing it into the obedience of Christ to the place of trusting God. He knew God was greater. Yes, he had accusers all around saying he was useless, a king as good as dead. But he was God's king and son. And in that knowledge, he was held secure. For David... The way was still clear. The way was open, even though the physical reality said something different. For him, he was still in a broad open place because he trusted in God. He knew God could remove every blockage and hindrance and that either way the kingship, the crown was God's to give to whom he pleased anyway. David ruled for the Lord and not for man. 2 Corinthians 10 goes on in verse 15 to 18 to say, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. David lived this. His reality was not conformed by what men approved, nor who he himself had been. He didn't boast here about his past achievements. Hey, I'm the guy who slayed tens of thousands. I'm the king who led Israel to take the promised land. He only commended himself to the Lord and his approval. In 2 Samuel 15, it describes as David fled the city with those loyal to him. It says, David sent the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem saying, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. What came out of David here at these moments didn't happen accidentally. David spent time with the Lord. It was his practice to spend time waiting on the Lord. David's secret place began in the wilderness as a shepherd and continued into the back room as a king. We see evidence throughout the Psalms that in every season of life, he wrote and spent time meditating on the Lord, singing and writing spiritual songs to the Lord. What he did in secret was squeezed out of him in moments like this. So this psalm, or the psalms, is a model for training and defense against attacks of the enemy. After all, the spiritual battle is one of focus. My questions for you today is, who do you focus on? What dialogue do you entertain? What are you saying to yourself? Do fears get the right to take root and then the right to determine how you'll stand? What words are you entertaining? There are things of God's kingdom and there are things that are not. The equipping of us believers, this is in conclusion, the equipping of us believers comes as we bring our thoughts in alignment with Christ's. 
David throughout the Psalms models how to do this. Again, like it says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 in the Amplified Version, we are destroying sophisticated arguments and every exalted and proud thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought and purpose captive to the obedience of Christ. This, my friends, is our invitation. As we align our thoughts with Jesus and what he displayed, then when we are squeezed, we will find that faith and trust in our ability to save us, his ability to save us, and to redeem whatever situation uh, we can possibly experience pours out of us. It's only what we put in that can come out. The word of God doesn't pour out of those who are not being filled by him. What we consume, what we focus on, what we tell ourselves and what we believe will come out of us when we're squeezed. Learning to pray the Psalms, this God's anointed prayer book, is a wonderful model of defense uh, that was written by someone that God called a man after his own heart. So be equipped with the truth before the moment comes. What David, a man after God's own heart, learned in secret was what came out when he was squeezed. Learning and praying the Psalms is a model defense for every believer. As Jesus hung on the cross, his final words were from the Psalm. From verse 5, it says, Into your hands. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. David knew this. Jesus knew the Psalms. He was full of them. He quotes uh, scripture throughout his, his time on earth. And this is what squeezes out of him in his final moment in the greatest crushing any man could have gone through. They say that Stephen, the first martyr, said the same words. He quoted the Psalm. So, as Psalms 1 verse 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. God blesses those who meditate on his words. Fill yourself with the word of truth, because that will come out of you when you're squeezed. That will be the lens through which you process all of life. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we love you. We, we say right now, you are our God and we trust you. Father, we ask that you'd shift every wrong perspective in us. Lord, I pray um, from Psalm 139 um, where it says, Lord, point out anything in us that offends you and lead us along that path of everlasting life. Lord, we give uh, ourselves to you as a body this morning and we invite you, Father, if there's places where our thoughts are out of alignment with yours, that you would make it known to us right now. Father, we just pray for that, um, that truth that triumphs, that we would know you as king of all, that our faith would be focused on you in the midst of our trials, and um, that we could pray like you've taught me to pray. Thank you for this experience, Lord that you're using it to equip me with the strength and training and resilience for the coming seasons. Thank you that you're um, preparing me for an eternal weight of glory. Yeah, Lord, we love you. Lead us. Amen.